Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 163, recorded on November 15th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news, and let's start with a fix landing for Ubuntu users that allowed standard users to gain root access. We're finding this out from a blog post by Kevin Backhouse, a researcher over at GitHub, who describes an, an astonishingly straightforward way to escalate privileges on Ubuntu. With a few simple commands in the terminal and a few mouse clicks, a standard user can create an administrator account for themselves. The first series of commands triggered a denial-of-service bug in a daemon called Account Service, which, as its name suggests, is used to manage user accounts on the computer. To do this, Backhouse created a symlink that linked a file named .pamenvironment to slash dev slash zero, changed the regional language setting, and sent account service a sigstop signal. With the help of a few extra commands, Backhouse was able to set a timer that gave him just enough time to log out of the account before account service was crashed. <laughs> and when he does this just right, Ubuntu would restart and open a window that allowed the user to create a new account that, you guessed it, had root privileges. Backhouse said that Ubuntu uses a modified version of the account service that contains code that's not necessarily included in the upstream version. That extra code looks at that PAM environment file in the home directory. By making a file that symlinks to dev0, PAM environment gets stuck in an infinite loop. But there's also a second bug, and that bug involved a hack that resided in the GNOME display manager, which, among other things, manages the user session and login screen. The display manager, which is often abbreviated as GDM3, also triggers the initial setup of the OS when it detects there is no users that currently exist. Yeah, that was the problem, Chris. We've all seen that setup screen when you're first configuring your computer on a, on a GNOME-based system. If you don't have any accounts, well, you need to set one up. Unfortunately, what happens here is GDM tries to do a talk to account service to check, like, hey, are there any users on the system? But the code, well, there's a small problem in that the variable is already set to false is, are there, are there users? Uh. And since that call never completes, that variable never gets changed to true, and it just shows you that screen right away. Okay, yeah, and in fact, uh, Backhouse says that he discovered these essentially by accident. Um, the Ubuntu account service issue was fixed on November 3rd, and the GNOME desktop issue was patched a day later um, on November 4th. The vulnerability only impacted desktop users, and it required access to the GUI. So not necessarily easy to exploit in most cases. I suppose, though, that said, you could be a maniac like me and occasionally install a desktop environment on your server. <laughs> but not Indeed. Most, most people don't normally do that. But sometimes I find it handy, actually. Uh, so uh, install your patches. According to the Ubuntu notes, all releases from 16.04 LTS to the most recent 2010 were affected. And the team cranked that out and got that fix out. So go get them installed. You know, I do think this is kind of noteworthy just in just in that these days, most vulnerabilities, you know, they require some code knowledge, some trickery, some complicated setups of memory, state, and corruption. And this was all just done by basic Linux commands in the terminal in the GUI, which is which is kind of interesting. I should also stress here that, that the author points out that, you know, he spent a lot of time recently looking for bugs in Ubuntu, and you shouldn't take this to mean that Ubuntu is filled with bugs. That's not his experience. He looked for a lot and happened to find this one by accident, but there's a lot of eyes here, and it, in general... It's secure. It, it seems like it was actually relatively easy to surface in certain scenarios, but you really have a, you had that situation with GDM that 
perhaps the Ubuntu development team didn't even consider because that's such an edge case there where, uh, you know, the GDM comes up and it wants to be super helpful. <laughs> and then in that environment, it leads to a problem. But it's good to see everything fixed. Those of you in the industry may be familiar with Proxmox. Well, they've just released an open source Debian-based enterprise backup solution. We are big fans of Proxmox here at Jupiter Broadcasting. Used it for years and it's been a bit, but we were just talking about trying it again, and this backup server news might just be the excuse we need. If you're not familiar with Proxmox, it's a virtualization suite that supports really two ways to run your workloads, either something container-based with LXC or full virtualization with KVM. And then on top of that, it includes a web console, command line tools, a REST API for third-party tools, and some really high-end enterprise features that you need with virtualization. Now, it's been around for about 12 years. It started in April in 2008. And this is a nice addition to this. This backup server looks pretty cool, and I like that it's based on Debian. Yeah, all right. So the Proxmox backup server is based on the latest Debian Buster release, and it's powered by the long-term supported Linux 5.4 kernel series. It also uses powerful open-source technologies like ZFS on Linux for advanced file system and volume management. It supports things like incremental backups, data deduplication, compression, and authenticated encryption. And Chris, you'll like this. Using Rust as an implementation language guarantees <laughs> high-performance, low-resource usage, and a safe, high-quality code base. Well, or at be. least in theory, right? It must be. You no, know, it, it must be. It's, it's, it's proven because it's Rust. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> this is nice to see this. Uh, there are various subscription models available with Proxmox and the backup server. Obviously, if you're running this thing in production, that's always recommended you get access to the enterprise repository. <laughs> and support, so it's probably pretty important. But the cool thing about Proxmox and why we wanted to mention it here in the show is it's also free for you to go download and use fully featured for the most part. Um, you don't get access to some of the enterprise um, updates and obviously the enterprise support, but you can get a real sense of what's possible with this uh, virtualization suite. And you can take a headless Linux box and turn it into like a closet VM machine. Um, or here in the studio, we used to run encoding systems on it and uh, a lot of our, a lot of the things we transitioned to the cloud, uh, we first ran here locally on premises, and Proxmox is just a great way to do it. So this backup server is pretty nice to see. The incremental backups means that you're going to have, uh, you know, the minimum amount of transfer for these uh, VMs, which means maybe even WAN backups might be possible. Data du duplicate, uh, data deduplication, I should say, compression and authenticated encryption are also available. So. That to me is speaking like this is seriously something maybe even for offsite VMs. I got to play with it. Yeah. I mean, I think having ZFS built right in, I would That's probably nice. use that to roll my own backup server anyway. And so you can either adopt this standalone if you just need a backup server and here's a great open source offering. But if you're already using Proxmox virtualization solution, this just integrates right in, right? It makes it super simple through the web GUI to go back everything up, take snapshots, restore from those snapshots. It seems pretty nice. And of course, we've been talking about this in the context of virtual machines, but with Proxmox, it's good to keep in mind that it supports containers, so the Proxmox backup server will also support backing up your containers. Yeah, it gets fancier than that. They even have support for granular restore, where you can do file-level restore of container backups. Even better, they've got some interesting items on their roadmap, including LDAP and Active Directory authentication and two-factor support, support for backing up other solutions, things like their mail gateway, or actually backing up the, the Proxmox host itself to the backup server, and what I'm excited for, tape support. Now, as a final note, uh, Proxmox backup solution is AGPL, and we'll have links to everything we've talked about here, including their Git repository in our show notes. 
linode.com slash land. Go there to get a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Linode is our server hosting provider, and they can be yours too. They provide virtual servers that make it easy and affordable for you to host anything in the cloud. They have native SSD storage on these virtual machines, so you get really fast disk I.O. And Linode costs 30 to 50% less than major cloud providers like AWS or Google Cloud or Azure. And they've been around three years before AWS started. They started with a love for Linux. They saw what KVM could do. They saw what the Linux kernel user mode could do and all of that. And they've built something around it that's pretty special. And as the years have gone on, they've made it better and better. They're independently owned and they're founded on a love for Linux. And because they got started in this thing so early on, they were able to build a diverse, flexible network powered by Linux. They just recently, I think on like November 9th, put up a blog post that talks a little bit about their networking model and why it's particularly useful for developers that need really low latency, high speed connections between their servers. They got data centers in 11 places around the world. So there's probably ones either close to you or or close to your client. You combine that with the high-speed disk and the nice high-end systems that you can get, and you can have something extremely high performance. But maybe you need something approachable. Well, they have systems that start at $5 a month. You want to host a portfolio or a blog or a website that you could even back with object storage so it's crazy super fast. All of that's available. And when you go to linode.com slash land, you get that $100 60-day credit. So you can really try it. You can really see what it's capable of. Maybe you build yourself a VPN box. I've been asking people to tweet me at ChrisLAS what they do with their Linodes. And I've heard some really cool stories about how people can use SSH to do amazing things. And a $5 a month rig is perfect for that. And like myself, I heard from someone who set up a Minecraft server for their kids on Linode. Also really great for that. Check out linode.com slash land to get started. You go there, you support the show, it lets them know you heard about it here, and it gets you that $100 60-day credit. Go there, check them out, see what they have. And also, by the way, Linode's often hiring. Go to linode.com slash careers to see if they have a job position that might fit you. There could be a great opportunity there. Linode.com slash land. Receive a $100 60-day credit, support the show, and much more. Linode.com slash land. And thanks to Linode for sponsoring Linux Action News. I don't know if you heard, Chris, but Bitcoin, well, it's up again. It's outrageous. Yeah, we, we talked about PayPal and their eventual support for Bitcoin. Well, guess what? It's already here. The CEO of PayPal noted, too, with the announcement of it going live, that the shift to supporting crypto was driven what he sees by inevitable drift towards virtual currencies. But like you touched on, Wes, every time the price comes up, People start getting Bitcoin crazy. Here's a sample of a little mainstream coverage of a very technical topic. PayPal cashing in on the crypto craze, a payment company announcing a new feature that will allow users to buy, sell and hold cryptocurrencies, including Bitcoin. The news sending Bitcoin soaring more than 7% to its highest level of the year. And our next guest is a crypto pro who says PayPal just gave a major stamp of approval for the entire crypto space. Joining us now is CoinShares Chief Strategy Officer Melton Demurs. Melton, great to see you. It's been a while. It has been a while. I feel like uh, Bitcoin's exciting again, so here we are. It's uh, great to be back. Here we are. In fact, we have the Bitcoin bug back up in the corner uh, because it's gotten so exciting now. Gotta have that live price tracker, Wes. Of course. <laughs> yeah, so PayPal has has gone live with its support as it as it said it would. There's, there's of course, some gotchas in there. PayPal's in this to make money, after all. And so there's transaction fees and, and whatnot. Yeah, and actually, in an interesting twist, your, your coins can't really leave PayPal. So you can hold them, you can buy them, you can trade them back into, you know, into the currency of your choice. 
but you can't take them with you. Yeah. Yeah. And like global support from PayPal, I don't think really comes until 2021. So it's sort of limited in the rollout at this point. And for to say nothing <laughs> about using Bitcoin to actually pay uh, PayPal merchants, <laughs> it's also a ways off still. But it's kind of getting there. I mean, I, I, I guess I guess this is early days, so they have time to kind of hone this just right. Um, you also just have to figure for a company like PayPal, they've got to figure out how to hold such a volatile currency and and represent that information accurately to users. Could you imagine people who are not really familiar with this? Um, to the point that we just heard from that clip, the excitement is ridiculous. I actually got a telegram from my mom last night <laughs> wow. asking me if I was familiar with the cryptos and if I was tr- if I was following any of the cryptos. Uh, everybody's talking about it again. As we record, it's just below 16,000. It was over 16,000 this weekend. And um, it seems to be like an annual tradition. Like every year as we approach the end of the year, uh, Bitcoin just goes crazy on this. And we talk about it here on the show. And here we are again now because of PayPal. And this is adding, in some ways, a lot of legitimacy. I mean, you heard it in that clip to to people who are in the financial markets, a company like PayPal getting behind something like this is a serious nod of legitimacy and approval. Yeah, and brings it a little bit more to the mainstream. Now, I, I think that's the key. If you're already interested in cryptocurrencies, you already have Bitcoin of your own, you're probably not going to go use PayPal solution, at least at the <laughs> moment. But many folks already have a PayPal account. I know I, know I do. And that makes it pretty easy. You just got to go set up their PayPal cash account so you can actually store cash there, transfer some stuff from your bank, and then you can just buy Bitcoin or Ethereum or Bitcoin Cash or Litecoin. Man, 2020 is a weird year. What's nice to see about this, though, is, and this will be a differentiator as time goes on, PayPal has received the first conditional bit license from the New York Department of Financial Services, which is one of the most hawkish subnational financial regulators in the U.S. So many have noted that the fact that it got that's a good sign and that PayPal's crypto services would entail coins that it bought on the platform and would not be able to leave. And that may be tied back to this conditional bit license. We will see. It may be a compromise they had to make to, to bring cryptocurrency to a wider audience on the PayPal platform. And if that is a limit of their conditional bit license, um, that could have long-term limiting effects on what the service is capable of doing. I think they, you know, there are some things in their favor there, and that at least at the moment, Bitcoin seems to be more of a, you know, a store for value differentiator in your portfolio than it is really for buying things in the street day to day. True, true. Um, so we've talked about Bitcoin, but there's also Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin Cash, and Litecoin support, I believe, in PayPal as well. Indeed. So it's not all just one crypto. And um, you obviously are not in direct control of your private keys. PayPal doesn't give you access to your cryptocurrency keys. So you're not going to be able to take them out of PayPal and store them in your own wallet. And that's something people should be aware of. Yeah. So it's very much if you're going to get into this, you're doing it on PayPal's terms. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to have to learn some more technical solutions. Well, some breaking changes may be inbound to System D 247. Funny enough, though, it all stems from a kernel change in 4.14. Yeah, that long ago. It was a change designed to allow user space to handle devices that needed a little bit of help before they could become fully functional. To do that, the kernel added two new event types called bind and unbind. Why is that a problem? Well, it all comes down to UDEV, which unfortunately has an assumption built in that there will only be one event associated with, say, plugging in a new device. And, well, with two new events, that's no longer true. At first, uh, Systemd did have a short-term fix, but that was just to ignore the new events, and obviously that was never going to be a long-term solution. 
They have now come up with a long-term solution, but unfortunately, some parts of that solution have some unfortunate implications for users with custom UDEF rules. Yeah, so so we seem to have two fixes, and the first fix is a change in how tags will work for UDEF. Now, if you're not familiar, tags are special properties that can be attached, then matched in subsequent rules or consumed by user space. So rather than attaching tags to events, as is currently done, UDEV will start attaching them to devices so that tags added in response to, say, an add event will still be there when that second bind event shows up and you won't lose all the state and you won't be in a confusing place where your device didn't actually initialize successfully. That's nice. And then there's that second fix, uh, which may affect people with custom UDEV rules, something that's going to probably cause distribution some work. Right. So you've got all these UDEV rule sets, which can match on these tags, perform actions after devices are added or removed. The problem here is that a lot of these rules were written under the assumption that no new event types would be added. So anything that wasn't recognized as adding or modifying a device, well, that could just be ignored. That's not the case now, and that's where the breaking change comes in. We need new rules. They're going to have to write new UDEV rules. Exactly. Well, some breaking... Everyone's quick to jump on the systemd hate train, but they're actually saying this one's not on us. This is actually technically on the kernel and that change that happened at 4.14. Was this a violation of the kernel's no regressions rule? The answer must almost certainly be yes. Code that worked with the 4.13 kernel no longer worked with 4.14. But what should have been done about it? Well, that's a bit less clear. Yeah, indeed. And the other thing is, is it was kind of hard to track this one down. This is one of those funny things about open source software development. The bug was first reported on KDE's Bugzilla. Not to the kernel team, not to systemd, but on the KDE Bugzilla. And you can kind of see how that would take a while to work its way through the process. Yeah, I mean, it was almost a year later by the time it made it to the kernel mailing list. And by that time, 4.14 had been anointed an LTS release and distributed by distributions. Yeah, and the kernel team um, may be ultimately responsible. That's, I mean, I guess the systemd team could make that could make that call here because of the change in 4.14. But I think what it really has underscored is maybe not who's at fault, but how to keep all of these teams in sync and properly communicating because they each have like their own mailing list, but that's not really the place for this style of collaboration. Because if you zoom out, what we have here is a bug that was caused by the kernel a long time ago that impacted the way systemd behaved, which is forcing a breaking change for UDEV. (laughs) <laughs> and then ultimately users who are relying on these UDEV rules. And it's a yeah. big, messy, complicated ecosystem. But fundamentally, we're all working on that same system. And we would probably have an easier time of it if we could talk things through a little bit more. Linux.ting.com. Go there to get $25 off a device. Or if you bring a device, and you probably can, you get $25 in service credit. And rest assured, Ting's going to have you covered. They have three nationwide networks you can pick and choose from, which means they support a lot of devices, too. Ting is really simple mobile that just makes sense. It's a fair price for however much you talk, text, and however much data you use. If you use less, you pay less. I'm on Wi-Fi during the day, so Ting makes a lot of sense for me. And when you combine the nationwide coverage, it means there's a lot of options when I travel. And the brilliant thing about Ting is their dashboard. They have the best dashboard in the industry. You can take control of your entire account. You can see your usage at a glance. You can set usage alerts, which I think is pretty great. And let's talk devices. With Ting, the BYOD options are crazy with their three network support. So go to linux.ting.com. Start there, support the show, get that $25 credit, and then 
click on the check your phone link. When you click on that, you plug in your phone's IMEI number, put it all in there. They'll tell you if you can bring it over or not. It's really simple. And you can get that simply off your phone by doing star pound zero six pound. And then you get that number, you put it in the website, see what you can do. Of course, you can buy devices from Ting directly as well or get a SIM card. Ting has all of these really nice features. And you might wonder, what what is it about Ting that makes it possible? Well, they're an MVNO. Are you familiar with that? It's a, it's a mobile virtual network operator. They ride on top of several networks. So they don't have to worry about the, building the towers. They can focus on customer support. They can focus on high value. They really have something special here. And 70% of MVNO customers that were surveyed recently said they were extremely happy with their service and pricing, satisfied or very satisfied. And Ting is at the very top of that stack. Nobody does it like Ting. MVNOs are pretty great, and Ting is the top. They're the one that they're the leader. Everybody follows Ting, so you should check them out. They really get the pricing right, they get the options right, and they nail the support. Linux.ting.com. Go there, try them out, and see why people love using Ting, and see if your phone's compatible. And then you have no contract; you just pay for what you use. Great price. Use less, pay less. That's the brilliant thing about Ting. That's Linux.ting.com. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Action News. And thanks to everyone who supports the show by going to linux.ting.com. KDE and Pine64 are announcing today the imminent availability of the new PinePhone KDE Community Edition. Hmm, very interesting. And I think we're all pretty familiar with Plasma Mobile. As you know, it's a direct descendant from KDE's successful Plasma desktop. And there's some underlying technologies that drive both the desktop environment and the mobile environment. I mean, you got things in there like KDE Connect, which obviously lets you connect your phone to your desktop, Ocular for document reading, Wave for music playing, and a bunch of other apps that work both in phone mode and in desktop mode. Now, of course, the idea of having mobile devices that can display a full workstation desktop when connected to a monitor, keyboard, and mouse has been around for years. Hey, don't call it convergence. And both the KDE community and Pine64 have been working to make it a reality. The PinePhone handset itself is also ready for that convergence. You can use any USB-C dock to connect it to an extra USB device like mouse, keyboard, storage. You can also connect it to external monitors or even a wired network. And in fact, the 3 gigabyte version of the PinePhone already comes with a dock that provides two extra USB ports, a full-size HD video port, and an RJ45. Yeah, I love the idea of having Ethernet on my phone. On your phone. <laughs> uh, this also comes at a nice time for Plasma Mobile in general. Michael Larbrell over on Pharonix has a nice write-up about some of the niceties that are landing in um, Plasma Mobile here towards the end of 2020, kind of polishing things off. And they've worked hard on this, and they just put out a report, an October 2020 report outlining all of the strides they've made in like the last month and change. Yeah, some of those nice accomplishments are stuff like support for task switcher thumbnails. That's always nice. Tweaks to the task panel appearance and a whole bunch of refactoring for their spacebar, SMS and MMS handling application. Yeah. So the PinePhone is uh, kind of becoming the go-to for community firmwares and different desktop or sorry, phone environments. <laughs> oh, that's a tricky one. But what's nice about the Plasma mobile version is we haven't seen a lot of these environments that are cute based, you know, and Plasma seems like they've really put a lot of work into this mobile version. So you finally get to see some hardware that's really going to showcase this desktop environment. And for those of you who aren't huge GTK fans, you've got something non GTK to throw on a device now. But if it doesn't work for you, you've still got all of the other OSs that you can load on the Pine 64. It's just an SD card swap away. 
hey, that's the power of Linux. Well, from the next billion-dollar industry file, we have some more eBPF news. Some things are coming out because eBPF Summit just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. And just a few days ago, Cilium announced a massive $29 million Series A financing round backed by Anderson Horowitz, Google, and Cisco. And what's kind of unique about Cilium and great about them is they're early adopters and heavy users of eBPF. Cilium is an open source project that's been designed on top of eBPF to address the networking, security, and visibility requirements of container workloads, especially our friend Kubernetes. It provides a high-level abstraction on top of eBPF that basically lets Linux kernel better integrate with these Kubernetes workloads. Mm, that's probably getting more and more important. And during a Q&A session after Greg KH's talk at the Linux Application Summit that just happened this last weekend as we're recording this, uh, Greg KH said something that caught our attention. He said, out of all of the technologies as uh, the kernel's number two, as the Commander Riker of the Linux kernel, out of all the technologies he's excited about, eBPF has got to be one of the top. Uh, eBPF, if you care about networking and networking control planes and stuff like that, um, and tracing and modifications of the kernel as it runs, um, eBPF is great. You don't have to write kernel modules anymore. You don't have to write drivers anymore. You can do some really cool stuff. Um, eBPF just keeps getting better and better. Um, there's more, um, there's eBPF um, conference last week. So go look at the notes for that. Um, there's a book now about it. Um, it changes all the time in the kernel, but it's really, really, really good. If I was uh, buying and selling kernel stocks in new technologies for the Linux kernel, this would be one I'd be buy, buy, buy. Yeah, I think I'll, <laughs> I know where I'm investing my Bitcoin. <laughs> There was one other technology that he was really super excited about, but I'm going to save that clip for this week's Linux Unplugged, where I also have an epic Dell laptop review. So once you get done listening to Linux Action News, make sure you save a little bit of room for Linux Unplugged because it's going to be a good one this week. But that does bring us to the end of this week's Linux Action News. Be sure you go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, so do send us in your contact information. Links to everything we talked about today at linuxactionnews.com slash 163. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Next week.